This is episode number 31 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the biweekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media cannot be objective. The conservative, as I refer to them now, state-run media has been completely compromised We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. Lots to get to, as is usually the case on episode number 31. Got to talk about the pardon of Conrad Black. The proposed pardon of Eddie Gallagher, the Michael Flynn News, Justin Amash coming out essentially in favor of impeachment, but Mitt Romney pouring a little cold water on that. Uh, There is new news involving Trump's golf game and breaking news involving Trump's favorite bank, Deutsche Bank, plus Joe Biden officially announces his campaign in Philadelphia. We'll get to all that, but first, uh, an interview that I'm really looking forward to. This is with uh, David Frum, the senior editor and a writer for The Atlantic and author, the uh, former uh, Bush, George W. Bush speechwriter, and he wrote the book Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic, and he joins us now. David Frum, welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for the hospitality. It's always great to talk to you, David. And I have to say, one of the reasons why I was very interested in speaking with you is that uh, of all the people on uh, the right side of the political aisle who I think have reason to be claiming vindication over what uh, has become of the Trump presidency, I would put you right at the top of the list, both in the in the macro and the micro. The macro, I would say, your book Trumpocracy, uh, and in the micro, your uh, what what I perceive to be your steadfast belief that the Mueller report was far more damaging to a Donald Trump than Bill Barr was presenting it to be in that original four-page summary in his press conference. Uh, I know it's not really your style to, to claim vindication, but but do, do you agree with my assessment on that? Well, you're very kind, and of course. You're being modest because you've been very prescient yourself and, and very outspoken, and, and you've taken a lot of um, uh, blows as a result. Um, here's the thing I will take special, um, I'll, I'll claim a special point of prescience for, and I'm not happy about this, but this is something I've been warning about since 2017. Uh, I wrote a piece in the spring of 2017, just after the appointment of the special counsel, that said, let's take the worst construction of what Donald Trump did with the Russians. Let's assume that they really were in communication back and forth with, with WikiLeaks, or even with some aspect of the Russian state, of the collusion in the strongest form. So I then went and interviewed a bunch of people who served in previous White House counsel's offices and said, if this was true, what laws would they have broken? And there's a lot of head-scratching, because, I mean, there's some technical things about, you know, taxes and um, federal elections law, but the core evil of getting information from a foreign, hostile foreign intelligence agency is probably not illegal. So when, when Trump said, so when, when, when Trump was sentenced uh, on his rampages, you know, that no laws were broken, I have been worried since 2017 he may be right about that. 
And so this whole effort to construct, um, to turn the Mueller investigation into a legal evening talk show, where you have all these law professors on and they talk about the U.S. code, it was missing the point. The point was we had a national security problem. Um, the president was beholden to Russia, even if no one was ever going to be able to prosecute him. And Mueller had been sent out there to look for crimes. And what we needed was someone looking for a breach in our national security. Now, let's go back and go through this a little bit. I do want to talk about the macro picture of Trumpocracy, because I think a lot of this is related. But regarding Mueller... My view of the of the Mueller report, my, my suspicions were there immediately about what Barr was doing, and 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 then frankly, they were, ended up being worse than I even suspected. But with regard to the Mueller report in particular, it was worse than what I was expecting. Did you have the same sense? Well, the, the obstruction parts, um, the obstruction part was that was the one where we really learned a lot. Um, just I mean, the idea that Trump was ordering his lawyers not to take notes. Um, the idea that um, Trump was using intermediaries like Corey Lewandowski so that he could fire Mueller without leaving any paper trail, any, any, anything in writing about who had ordered this done. Um, the obstruction case is, I think, really serious. Um, the, the volume one about the Russia part, um, I, I think most of that had already been brought to the light of day uh, by the time the report was released. And we had a story that was a story we've known for a long time, which is um, that the Russians helped elect Trump. Trump welcomed the help. Trump tried to get advanced information about what was going to be in the WikiLeaks dump. What we learned from Mueller is actually they probably did not succeed in getting advanced information, but they, they certainly did try. Um, but then the, there were multiple contacts back and forth between WikiLeaks and people in the Trump orbit, including Roger Stone. And this part is redacted, but probably Donald Trump Jr. too. Um, and so you you have a president in a situation where he owes his job to help form a foreign power. But Mueller concluded that there was nothing here to indict. Um, he may well be right about that, but that doesn't mean the situation isn't desperately serious. David, you, would you agree with the assessment of some, and, and, and I'm certainly, if not in this camp, close to it, that the Mueller report does prove collusion. It just doesn't prove a crime related to that collusion. Do you agree with that? Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, because most, because uh, we have never written these things down as laws. I mean, there are a lot of things that are just, I just are not, you know, uh, we don't write down as laws, and it never occurred to us that anybody would do them. Uh, do you know there's a story in Louisiana May Alcott about the children who put beans up their nose? <laughs> uh, mother is about to go to uh, go down the road to uh, um, get some milk from the uh, from the dairy, and she. As she closes the farm gate, she says to the three little children, "Be good. Watch your baby. Watch the baby, and whatever else you do, do not put beans up your nose." <laughs> and the story goes, to this point, it had never occurred to them to put beans up their nose. Right. But once mother said not to do it, the idea began to exercise a kind of fascination. Well, what you're, and, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what you're what you were saying, David, is that our system was not set up for someone like Donald Trump, right? Right. The premise of the system. Um, is that there's political is that there's going to be political oversight? But you're expecting um, the president to, to care about his reputation. You're expecting the president to be a patriot. And what you're also expecting this is this is one of the problems in the American system that's been there from the beginning. We're expecting members of Congress to think like members of Congress and not like members of one party or another. But as in our lifetimes, partisanship has gotten stronger. 
they don't think like members of Congress. They think like members of the president's party. Now, let's go back to the Mueller report again before we get into the bigger picture. With regard to obstruction, I felt as if uh, Mueller was on the opposite of a witch hunt. I thought that Mueller provided Trump with every possible benefit of the doubt, uh, actually did not connect dots when he easily could have, and and seemed to almost be, and this is just my interpretation, you can, and you can certainly react to this if you like, he almost seemed as if he was intimidated by the charges that he was on a witch hunt, trying to bend over backwards to prove that he wasn't. What do you make of that assessment? Well, well that last point is very interesting. I, I haven't thought about it, and I, I can't. Let me go out take a second. But to your first point, I think you're exactly right. And here's, let me give you an example. Um, Paul Manafort, um, who was working for Donald Trump for free, despite being up to his eyeballs in debt from with people who don't collect debt by sending you uh, lawyers' letters. They send guys with you know bulges under their arms. Uh, <laughs> Man- Manafort shared polling data with a representative of a Russian to whom he owed a lot of money. And the Mueller report notes this, describes the exchange of polling data, and then says, "But because we never got evidence of what motivated Mueller, sorry, what made motivated Manafort." to share this information. And he then declines to ex- uh, explain whether or not this information in any way helped to shape the Russian Facebook campaign. Um, did it, I mean, the, the thing you think is, Manafort showed them, we have, we have good polling data that shows Hillary Clinton is weaker in Michigan and Wisconsin than she thinks she is. Um, and you could turn the tide. And just to put a little political context here, um, why was Hillary Clinton so confident? about Wisconsin and Michigan. Why did she think she was going to win those states? And the answer is, well, you know, Michigan is like 14.5% black, Wisconsin a little bit less, uh, African-American votes go 90-10 for the Democrat, and there is a lot of, we have seen over the past generation, rising black participation in elections. Uh, 2012 is higher than 2008, 2008 is higher than 2004, and so on back. So you simply assume, you know, if black participation is anything like in the normal range, and if it goes 90-10 to the Democrat, um, Hillary Clinton's going to win those two states. What happened instead was there was a collapse in black voter turnout um, in across the country in 2016, and especially in the upper Midwest. And there's a, there a surge in white voter turnout, not white voter turnout, but especially a collapse in black turnout. And so the racial ass worked in favor of the Republicans, not Hillary Clinton. Well, one of the targets. One of the things that the Russians spent the most effort on was trying to spread messages discouraging black Americans from voting. It's useless. It's corrupt. Uh, they're all the same. Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton put everybody in prison. Blame her. And then the question is, did Manafort's data help the Russians to figure out this was the weak spot to elect Donald Trump? Suppress black turnout in these areas where we can see some demoralization and we can flip those, those states. Um, that's something that will be really interesting to know. Mueller doesn't seem to have looked at it. Well, just to, to put a, a, a finer point on that, it's an amazing coincidence that the Russian strategy dovetails exactly with Steve Bannon's strategy of voter suppression in the upper Midwest, that they focus, they focus on Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and for some reason, Minnesota. And, uh, and, and that, to me, is one of the many underrated points in the entire report is, well, wait a minute, those are the states, three of them, that determine the election. Now, I don't know, and I don't think anyone's ever going to know, whether or not that effort ended up impacting the result, 
But we're talking about three states that were decided by very small margins. And if they all three uh, go for Hillary Clinton, we have a totally different result. Uh, Two of the three were stunning upsets. Wisconsin was the biggest upset of my lifetime. I mean, Hillary gets a lot of flack for not uh, visiting Wisconsin. And I look at the polling data going into the last couple of days there, and she would have been nuts to go to Wisconsin. I mean, there there was no chance she was losing Wisconsin. So so you don't see that as a coincidence, I take it. Yes, if black Americans had showed up in 2016, not at Obama levels, not at 2008, not at 2012, but in the same levels they'd shown up for John Kerry. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary Clinton would have won Michigan and Wisconsin. Pennsylvania is a little more complicated, um, but she would have certainly Michigan, probably Wisconsin. Um, so that that's you know that's the proximate cause. I want to understand. I think the American people are owed an explanation of this. I, I, I am not so interested in the question of was there a criminal conspiracy? Um, should you know um, in, you know anyone in the Trump organization be indicted for um, for, for conspiracy? I, I think we all just want to know. What happened? And we want to know that both as a matter of history, but we also want to know as a matter of national security, um, what obligations does the president have to foreign countries? Um, you know, that's that's something that you know, in, in the past has been a really important issue. Um, that you know, in 1948, when Henry Wallace was running for president, he was, Henry Wallace is a former Republican, had become a Democrat, and became almost a communist, um, and he ran a campaign with a lot of Russian help or Soviet help. He wanted to know what's going on here. Um, is there is there a foreign presence in an American election? That's just something you need to know. And then and then as a voter, and as a political system, you can adjust accordingly. Let's get back to um, obstruction of justice for for just a moment. You you already mentioned one uh, example where Mueller doesn't really connect all the dots. I think that there are several. I, I think he gives Trump an enormous benefit of the doubt on Michael Cohen's perjurious testimony to Congress about when the Trump Moscow Tower project ended. I I find that an incredible coincidence that Michael Cohen, not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer, decides arbitrarily to pick January of 2016, just before the Republican primaries begin, as the date when the Moscow uh, project uh, ends, when we know that now is a lie and that, that that was going on probably throughout the entire campaign. By the way, while we're on that, do you agree with me, David, that it is the Trump-Moscow project which is really the heart of all of this as far as we currently know? Do you agree with that assessment? Um, I, I think that it, that is like the icing on the cake. It looks like I mean, Trump's Russia connections go back to about 2006. Um, and they may have, you know, we don't know how legitimate or not legitimate it is, but he, um, he was in a lot of trouble as a businessman coming out of the uh, downturn at, at the beginning of the 2000s. He was nearly bankrupted at the beginning of the 90s. Uh, clawed his way back, not to what he was, but to something more functional in the 1990s. That was nearly quite out again in the early 2000s. And at that point, he began to um, get a lot of investment uh, from Russians um, for his apartments and, and uh, condos. And beginning in 2006, he suddenly began to have quite a bit of cash on him. That's when he began his golf course. Uh, the, the golf courses are a new business for him. Right. Um, he, began, he began buying them after, in about 2009. And he paid cash. Uh, and the question is, where did that cash right. come from? Right. Um, you know, he, 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 Trump, after he finishes his state visit, is going to go to Ireland. And he, uh, as he state visit to the U.K., he wants to go to Ireland. And he's told the Irish Prime Minister, if you want to have a meeting with me, you have to come to my golf club. In Ireland, right. So he bought this golf club in Ireland, in, I think uh, 2011, 
and he bought it for about ten million U.S. dollars. And he's poured in another thirty million U.S. dollars, and it's still not making any money. And the question is, where did that forty million in, of investment come from, and where, who's covering the operating losses, and how is he doing all of that? Um, and those those are the kinds of questions that, with, with some reasonable amount of financial disclosure, you'd know the answer to. Well, yeah, and, and I've been very adamant about the, the golf course issue and where the cash came from, and it's, it's not just it's not just Ireland. You're a serious golfer, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I have I've actually played the golf course you're referring to in Ireland. Uh, I have a friend who who's as a member there. Uh, I I have played numerous of his golf courses. I uh, I I actually think golf is a big key to understanding what makes Trump tick on a, on a lot of levels. But and I I would add that the he paid enormous amounts of cash outside of his normal mo for Turnberry in Scotland, where by the way he he made a huge splash during the campaign uh, in in order to promote that property, Doral in Florida. Uh, none, of the, none of this makes any sense, but we've never been able to, to 100% point it on the Russians or some other force providing him the cash. I would add another element to this, David. It's not just where did he get the cash. Here's a guy who has to be at least thinking he's going to be running a, an insurgent race for presidency of the United States where you need a ton of cash. So, yeah. so why is he spending all of a sudden all this cash, that it, which is not his normal MO on these golf courses, which none of which have been uh, particularly good investments. Um, right. But I, I see. Re- but, but my point on Trump Moscow is that there needs to be a core scandal that he's protecting. And I think now there were many, but I think the core scandal he was protecting is I think he thought mistakenly because he underestimated his own cult. That if, if we, meaning Republicans, ever found out that he was using the Republican nomination as a leverage tool to get a, uh, a property built in Moscow with the Russian government's permission and lying about it, that that would be trouble for him. And that's why there was so much deceit surrounding this. So you, you, I don't, it doesn't sound like you agree with that, but what do you make of that, that no, no, uh, I think, theory? I think, I, think I think you're on the... You're, absolutely pointing us in the right direction, but I think you may be too specific. I'm going to direct you to something um, that I, struck me as the most important pair of sentences in the Mueller report. Um, and this is from Volume 2, page 76. So the first sentence says, as described in Volume 1, the evidence incur- uncovered in the investigation did not establish that the president or those close to him were involved in the charged Russian computer hacking or active measure conspiracies, or that the president otherwise had any unlawful relationship with any Russian official. They said, we've got no evidence of any of these sentence too. But the evidence does indicate that a thorough FBI investigation would uncover facts about the campaign and the president personally, that the president could have understood to be crimes or that would give rise to personal or political concerns. He's got a whole closet of things he's worried about. And he's not always, you know, he, he doesn't always have a clear idea of which of these things are improper, which are unethical, which are illegal, and which are super illegal. But he just knows he's got a lot of things in his background, and he needs to. Um, he's covering up often what he doesn't, and he doesn't even know what he's covering up. Just um, as shortly before you and I began to speak, the New York Times posted a big story about Deutsche Bank's flagging Trump transactions as suspicious, and then senior investigators, senior officials at the bank, saying, "No, no, we're not going to look at those." Now, who knows what those transactions are, and who knows how important they are, but. I mean, there's just, a, there's just a lot of murky stuff in the background, and Trump was at, may have felt at risk from a lot of it, starting with the Moscow Tower, just as you say, 
but maybe from some other things happening, some of which we know, but not as of which we know. On obstruction of justice, uh, yesterday, uh, on Saturday, Republican Congressman uh, Justin Amash from Michigan uh, made a lot of news because he was the first Republican elected official to basically say that what the Mueller report uh, came up with on obstruction is impeachable. It was a little vague as to whether or not he would vote to impeach Donald Trump, but he came about as close as you possibly could. Mitt Romney kind of poured cold water on that in a very, I thought, cowardly way today while praising Amash's statement. What did you make of of that uh, Amash-Romney uh, combination there and their reactions on obstruction of justice? Yeah, well, uh, as, as you say, Romney sort of blows hot, hot and cold. Um, I, and my instinct always is that first we need to establish what we think happened before we decide whether to do anything about it. And so I, I don't like yet going to discussions about is this impeachable or not, because there's still so much that we need to know. Um, we need, and we need to know, um, in particular, um, what happened in the 2016 campaign. We still don't know that. We don't know why. Why, did the, why were the Russians so eager to help Donald Trump? What was the nature of the business connection? Um, are you right that it was the Moscow Tower? Um, were there other things, too? Um, and for sure with the obstruction, that we just need to examine whether or not we call this an impeachable offense. Let's just agree that the president did everything in his power to shut down the investigation. And it's not true to keep saying, as the president's defenders say, that he cooperated with the investigation. That's just not true. He kept trying to fire the people running the investigation. He didn't do an interview. His, his written answers were, quote, inadequate. He said 37 times he didn't remember. I mean, if a Democrat did any of that, if Hillary Clinton did any of that, the people that, you know, you and I used to consider on our side of the aisle would be going crazy right now. Uh, right? I mean, that, well, that, 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 that's what um, I remember that, um, that do, do you remember um, in the Clinton impeachment that, that Clinton's secretary, kept saying she didn't remember in ways that no one found credible. I don't Betty Curry. She did. Yeah, Betty Curry. It was basically the same it, same deal. Remember it all too well. Remember it all too well. No, the Betty Cur- to me, what, what, what Bill Clinton did with Betty Curry is almost exactly, and got impeached for, uh, is almost exactly what I believe Donald Trump did with Michael Cohen on, on Trump uh, Moscow Tower. But Mueller was not nearly as aggressive as Ken Starr uh, for whatever reason. As far as what's impeachable, David, I think we... Two of the biggest things that are most obvious that very few people ever, uh, well, some of some people make this connection, but not everyone is making these connections. I think the most obvious impeachable offenses were right out in front of everybody. One is, is the, the firing of James Comey, saying it's about Russia, and now what we learned about Michael Flynn. See, that's the key here. People don't want to connect all the dots. What we just learned about Michael Flynn and efforts by the, by the Trump forces and by Congress to suppress his cooperation with Mueller, that shows that the firing of Comey proves that the statement to Comey by Trump to go easy on Flynn was not an idle statement. That was not an innocent statement. That means the firing of Comey was part of the obstruction in an effort to protect Flynn. So the, the firing of Comey becomes obstruction at that point. Similarly, the most underrated element of this whole deal, and the media got snookered because it happened on the day after the election in the midst of a of a bat crap crazy press conference, the firing of Jeff Sessions for the purposes of hiring his, his, his hand-picked guy, Bill Barr, who has done everything but be a PR hack 
for him in ways that no one could ever have imagined from an attorney general. The firing of Sessions is clearly an obstruction because he he had recused himself from the Russian investigation and he needed to pave his way with with Rod Rosenstein already had basically handed over his testicles to him and said, hey, look, I'll land this plane. So you got nothing to worry about with me. So once Rosenstein is taken care of, he gets rid of Sessions, hires Bill Barr and Bill Barr becomes his PR hack muting the Mueller report, which is the essentially the obstruction of the obstruction. What do you make of the, those assessments? That, that, seems, that seems all right. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, uh, Sessions is a very, very conservative person and more hawkish on immigration than probably most members of the uh, uh, Washington policy world. But he did show integrity. Um, and I think in the comparison between Sessions and Barr, uh, is I think now I, I hope more people are struck by it, and that um, Sessions at least gets that addition to his reputation that he was the guy who would not do what Barr was willing to do. Well, but do you see what I'm saying with regard to how those are clear? Uh, 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 incidences of obvious obstruction, but they're yeah. just too obvious for, from most right. people, right? Right. They should, um, yeah, look, the, the thing was, I mean, many people have made this point, that um, if we had to ferret out the things that Donald Trump announces in tweets, they would seem like big stories. But since he just tells everybody about it, Oh, okay, well, it's, it's now like on, on everybody's computer. It doesn't feel like a revelation. It feels like something he's almost bragging about. Well, I have referred belatedly, I should have come up with this term earlier, but I've referred now to Trump's Twitter feed as a weapon of mass obstruction. Because that's what it is. Oh, yeah. It is a yeah. weapon of mass obstruction. His tweets alone would make a, an incredibly profound case for obstruction of justice. All right, now, so let's go to Barr specifically, because I think this now gets us into the realm of Trumpocracy, your book, uh, the, the, um, the book Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. And I have to tell you, David, I, I thought when you, when you wrote the book that you were being, a, and I'm a pessimist by nature, I thought you were being a little pessimistic because I view Trump mostly as a buffoon. And, and and therefore, I wasn't sure that he was really capable or really even cared that much about, uh, you know, this creating an autocracy, as, as you refer to it in the book, that he really only cares about his own protection and he really only cares about, uh, you know, maybe enhancing his personal wealth. Now, that might be what he's doing here. But in effect, because of the methods that he's using, I now believe that he might be, either by mistake or by design, really changing the, our system of government to the form that you're referring to, with this, this autocracy, and that Bill Barr is where, to me, we cross the line. When Bill Barr uses the attorney general's office to be the personal attorney and PR hack for the president in such a dramatic fashion as he has, we are now uh, very close to an autocracy. Would you agree with that, David? Well, I, I think I'm going to agree with the, the things at the very beginning about how um, his, the, the, the Trump urge, he is about enriching himself. That's for sure. And I, I never thought that he had an organized process of um, an, organ, an organized process of, of building an autocracy. He's not that political. He's not that ideological. Uh, his problem is he's got a lot of legal risk, and he needs to break the law enforcement system of the United States in order to feel safe. So long as you have an honest Department of Justice, he's not safe. 
uh, because soon, because he's been just so many secrets. Um, as with these transactions with, with Deutsche Bank reported by the New York Times today, something is going to come along um, and get him into trouble. So he has to break it. So that's the driving force that's going to be attacked. But the second thing, that the drive, that's the driving force. The second thing is something you write about a lot, and that is the enabling force. Because what you found is that, um, that the Republican and conservative world um, is so committed to him that it is giving up on his idea, historic ideas about law, about um, the way the government should work, about the proper, uh, the proper limits on government, um, the proper relationship between politics and administration. In order to protect him, uh, they, they have to change, too. And the ch- it's the change in the Republican Party that is one of the most dangerous things that's going on right now. To me, while I'm a pessimist, David, I, I'm always holding out some glimmer of hope. I, I, I'm, I believe in fighting to the very, very end, giving everybody the opportunity to realize that they might be wrong and to change their minds. And you just never give up until it's totally over. But to me, the last couple of weeks, post Mueller report and Bill Barr's actions, the Bill Barr situation is the ultimate litmus test to me for every so-called conservative commentator. If you did not condemn what Bill Barr has done, and if you, especially if you embraced it or enabled it, as you say, then I'm done. You're, you're done because you have now shown that whether you want to admit it or not, you are part of the Trump cult here because there is no excusing this. Because if the, if the shoe was on the other foot, you would be going bananas if a Democratic attorney general did this for a Democratic president. Am I overstating the case there? Um, but no attorney general in modern times has done for presidents what, what Bill Barr has done. No. This is a somewhat longer-term view of history. So the United States has a bad history of presidents trying to use the law for political purposes. Um, there, there, uh, there's a lot of that um, basically before the Second World War. It was a real problem. But in those days, at least, the federal government was so small and so remote from the lives of, of the people that even if um, President Harding abused the Department of Justice, uh, it didn't matter very much to most of us. Um, this becomes more as the federal government gets bigger and closer to us, and, and, and as we begin to have federal crimes, in which there were almost none before the Second World War. Um, and you can have the, uh, the abuse of federal law enforcement, it becomes more and more dangerous. And what we call Watergate, that was a moment of the, in the middle 1970s where people of both parties, um, a lot of different ideological points of view, said we need to put new safeguards on the powers of the federal government. So things like the House and Senate Intelligence Committee were, uh, committees were created. The FISA courts were created. Um, you know, the FBI director can't just wiretap people. If you, the FBI wants to wiretap, somebody's got to go to a proper court and get a warrant. And it's, you know, if they think he's a spy, they're not going to just, they want to just know who he's talking to. They're not going to charge him with a crime. There's a somewhat different process. Um, but all of these things are regulated by law. And we began to build up new conventions about the connection to the president um, and uh, and, and, and law enforcement, if you're in the executive, one of the things when I worked in government, what we were all told, if, if we have a question about the F, that requires an answer from the FBI, uh, you go to, you do not call them. You go to the White House Counsel's office and you tell the White House Counsel your question. And they will determine whether it's an appropriate question, and if it is, they will place the call. Uh, and there are all of these safeguards, and they are now being ripped through. And this is really, this is the part that is really new. Um, and this didn't happen under Bush, it didn't happen under Obama, it didn't happen under Clinton. There are always, you know, there are always people cutting corners. 
But this systematic thing of saying, we're going to throw out all of these post-Watergate safeguards that were put in place, we're going, you know, we're turning back the clock half a century. And there were a lot of abuses before those safeguards were put in place. David, I'm glad you mentioned the, the idea of the modern notion of the federal government. Now that it's gotten so large, so powerful, the, the executive has become such a, a celebrity, frankly, and celebrity is everything in life, this cult of personality, that really any comparisons pre-Watergate are almost irrelevant. And so, so the, the, I, I think that's an important concept. And, and people, you know, maybe, we're, you know, this goes to your book, Autocracy. We are clearly heading towards a realm where the executive, the presidency, is deemed almost like a monarchy. Uh, and, and, that, and that Trump clearly is pushing in that direction, partially because of his own protection, partially because of his own ego, uh, and partially because he's a control freak. Uh, do, do you, I guess my biggest question for you, David, is... Is all what we're seeing, this the constitutional crisis with regard to uh, congressional oversight and Trump becoming a king, is all of this a dress rehearsal or for the end of the republic, or is this the real thing we're witnessing right now? This is, it's the test. Um, and, you know, nothing is the end. I mean, so long as uh, we have people who are willing to stand up. And I, I think we need... We, we need both realism about the nature of the danger, but we also need some, some hope and confidence in our fellow citizens. Um, so the reason that, you know, you're, you're doing, you've got your Paul Revere costume on and you're on your, you know, your, your radiophonic horse and are, are uh, going around the village greens telling people what to do is because you don't expect people to say, oh, whoa, um, I guess we're cooked. You don't expect them to do something and to say, here's, you know, here's, what, here's the path we're on. But it doesn't have to be this way. One of the things that um, I, in the, I said in the first article I wrote about the Trump presidency in, back in 2017, I said again in Trump Do you remember that scene in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol where Scrooge sees the final ghost? Yeah. And he asks the ghost, are you a vision of things that must be or things that may be? And the ghost doesn't answer. But the book shows us Nothing's compulsory. That, that actually, the, the ghost showed him of one vision of the future. He was free to choose a different vision, and he did. And the result is that all of the things that the ghost of Christmas future tell him that were going to happen, they do not happen because he had the vision and he acted in time. And so it is with us. For the record, my view is. I'm still trying to be hopeful, is that this is really a dress rehearsal, maybe a test, as you refer to it, is a better way to, to put it. I, I, I'm hoping that Trump will be a one-term president, although I, I don't know that that's going to be the case. Um, but but since you, you mentioned, you know, this idea of it doesn't have to be the case, what's the path to prevent this? I, I mean, because I don't, I don't necessarily know what it is. Do you, David, from see the path where we don't end up fundamentally changing who we are as as a people and as a government because of what Donald Trump has done here? Yeah, here's, here's what I think what the path looks like. Um, that uh, uh, the Republicans take a, they took a bad beating in 2018. They take a second beating in 2020. Bad enough that they can't say, oh, this is all John Ziegler's fault. You stabbed us in the back. It's all that you've been loyal and kept your mouth shut. You know, agree to be an intern on the Mark Levin show. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that everything would have been fine. You know, if it weren't for you, meddlesome kids. You know, this whole right. new plot would have worked. Like something where everyone's saying, "Wow, 
that was not a good idea. Uh, that was not a good idea. And not, not only did we lose, and lose badly, we lost badly despite pretty good economic conditions. So it is, this is going to be a pure play, a referendum on the character of the president and the nature of the Trump administration. Um, at that point, the Republicans have to think. And if and, and at that point, we have a different problem, which is, how, what, what, are, what are the Democrats think? Uh, so they face uh, they face uh, an important choice uh, for their future, which is, and this is I think what Biden is arguing about with Sanders and the others. Should is the next order of business for America to correct the abuses of the Trump presidency and start putting in place safeguards like presidents need better conflict of interest rules, and they have to apply to the president's family as well as the president person. We need you know, disclosure of tax returns. We need reforms like those we had in the 1970s to make the system more honest. Or do they say, hey, we won because Trump was weak and we got a lot of people who would not normally have voted Democrat to vote for us. This is our chance to really run with this ball faster than part of the voters intended and to do a lot of very radical economic things and not do those process reforms. So there's really a Democratic choice. And I think one of the things that you and I are going to be talking about, God gives us health and life, um, and we have that often right? this time, you know, two years from now, is the battle about was the lesson of the Trump uh, presidency that we need America to be a country of more integrity, or was the lesson that this is an opportunity for the Democrats to go far left on economic and social issues? Well, you're more optimistic than I am, one, about the, the results uh, of 2020 and how they would be interpreted. I, I, I can't even imagine the level of landslide that would have to occur for any of the Trump sycophants to say, yep, this was a bad idea, because they're way too invested now, David. They're going to come up with whatever excuse they can come up with, and it would have to be an epic landslide, which is historically highly unusual, other than uh, maybe 1980 when it, when an incumbent gets uh, gets crushed, like Jimmy Carter did, but that was with a bad economy. Uh, so I, I'm not certainly I'm not sure I, I see that. Do, I I do see it possible with uh, Joe Biden. And if the economy shows signs of weakening because of Trump's tariffs, Joe Biden, in my opinion, uh, wins every time against Donald Trump. And, and that's the, why the Democrats really ought to be looking at him first if this is a national emergency. I assume you agree with that concept. Yeah. You know, we all, if we're going to um, take this seriously, we all have to make sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices the Democrats are going to make is I understand they can see Trump looks weak. They have an opportunity to elect somebody they, they really like better, and they have some reservations about Biden. But they, you know, maybe you don't get to do everything you want to do. Maybe you need to do the things you have to do. Yeah, and I hope that that's what's going to win the day. But I, I, I see a perverse incentive of um, uh, with regard to forces on the left and, and media forces on the left. I think this is one of the narratives we're going to see coming in the next few months, David, especially if Joe Biden continues to lead like he is. That's not a good narrative for a lot of people who have an incentive to make this far more competitive race. The media wants a competitive Democratic race. They don't see Joe Biden as a ratings winner. And so I, I think Biden is going to get attacked by a lot of Forces not just because uh, he's not as progressive as they are, but because from a narrative perspective, from a purely you know ratings perspective, the storyline perspective, a, a Joe Biden runaway is not good for a lot of people with a lot of power. Do you see that happening? That makes sense. I think it's also true that for a lot of people who are, com- who are like principled and committed to big social changes, Trump is good for them. Trump makes people mad. Trump drives people to extremes. 
He, right. brought, he pulls Republicans to one extreme, but he pushes people who don't like Trump to another extreme. Um, if you have a kind of quieter presidency, uh, you see a lot of the political energy. And, you know, it'll go places where in America, you know, I'm, if you want to change the world, go into business, go into technology, go into the arts. Um, go, you know, be, be, uh, do something. Don't, don't go to politics to change the world. What we want for politics is we want politics to protect the ability of people in the arts, business, technology to change the world. Just make the rules fair. And then, you know, you have an idea for, you know, ordering pizza um, through, your, through your Snapchat, go and drink that. Um, <laughs> the, longer Donald, uh, the longer Donald Trump is president, too much of the country's energy is flowing into politics. And at its best and healthiest and happiest, the business of America really is business. And that, that's where the energy of the country should be going. And that's why I think there's a decent chance Trump gets reelected, because a lot of people who have a lot of power have a perverse incentive to keep him there, even though they don't even like him. Uh, so, yeah. so I think it's very much an open question. One last thing, David. You had mentioned that it's important that people stand up against Donald Trump. You have done so. I've done so. There are a handful of others that have on the Republican side who have have done so and, and maintain that position, although most have dropped off because it's not economically in their self-interest to do so. Uh, you have been able to somehow make this work for you, by the way, we, by congratulations on that. <laughs> I, I, you're, you're in the very rare, rare uh, situation that you've been able to survive all of this. M- many of us have not, but some people who have not stood up includes one of you know your former employers, George W. Bush, President Bush. You were a speechwriter for George Bush. I have been disappointed that George W. Bush has not been. I know this is against his his rules, if you will, of speaking ill of a current president. But could you give us your assessment of of how and why George W. Bush has remained so relatively quiet about the Trump presidency? Yeah, um, I don't obviously know, but here's what I I think I can imagine um, that the pre- that these interventions by former presidents only work if all of the presidents do it together. Because otherwise it looks like, you know, the Bush family has a lot of bones to pick with Trump, or Obama can't do it alone, but then it looks, again, too political. Uh, I think they may be waiting for the moment where you're going to have a situation where Bush and Obama and all the living former presidents say, this thing is unacceptable. Um, and maybe that's the moment where if Trump loses it and they will actually refuses to be power. Well, I'm a big believer that we already went through that one time, and and it cost us. I, I believe that what you just said happened in 2016. I think that Obama was keeping people like the Bushes, like Condoleezza Rice, uh, in the bullpen, if you will, in case there was a dispute over the election, and that's why they didn't speak out before the election, because no that, one thought Trump was going to win. That makes a lot of sense. No, I think that's what happened, and, and, it, and it ended up burning everybody. And so if we wait again, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that that's the, the right way to go. And, 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 and as far as waiting for the right moment, what the heck would that moment be? I mean, yeah. I mean, well, I mean my gosh. Really the person I'm really puzzled by is Romney, because there's Romney. He's in the Senate. He's, what, 74 years old. Right. Uh, he's got, like, you know, he's doesn't have any—he's not going to do any other job. He's got all the money in the world. He's got— 50 grandchildren. He has nothing more he wants from life. Trump was horrible to him. He's the United States Senator. Like, why isn't he going to tell everyone he's saying, I'm just going to mess the guy up today. <laughs> Do one thing, you know, uh, you know, uh, Kellyanne Conway, you used to have a car and driver, now you don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Every day I'm going to do something to mess you up. Um, I- but, but he doesn't do that. And he's 
reports to the president half the time, and even when he does speak, he doesn't act. It's amazing, uh, the, the cowardice. And, and frankly, I, I, we mentioned earlier that the system was not set up for Trump. I don't believe our founders ever thought that there would be a situation where no one would stand up. I, I think they thought that there would be good people. Not, not everyone was going to be good. Not everyone was going to be courageous, but there would be some. And now we find a situation where there's basically none. And that's what I think makes it so vulnerable to what you wrote about in Trumpocracy, because we're, go- we're, we're heading towards a situation where if no good people stand up, then there's nothing to stop this. And that's, to me, what's so dangerous about it. All right. All right. Well, David, from as always, thanks so much for your time. A senior editor and writer at The Atlantic, former Bush speechwriter, author of Trumpocracy. Make sure you get that book because it was prescient, to say the least. Thanks so much for your time, and please keep in touch. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks again to David Frum for what was a tremendous interview. Unfortunately, the audio quality did not match the level of the interview, uh, for which we apologize, but hopefully you were able to get uh, most or if not all of what David was talking about. And it's always good to uh, speak to him. I want to be able to get into deeper detail on some of the things that he and I spoke about. He referenced a New York Times Deutsche Bank story during the interview, which came out just before we started our discussion on this uh, Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time. And here are the details of that story. According to the New York Times, analysts employed by Deutsche Bank who specialize in money laundering recommended that the bank notify federal investigators about possible criminal activity in accounts controlled by President Donald Trump and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Those warnings started back in 2016. The report states the the transactions, some of which involved Mr. Trump's now defunct foundation. Oh, by the way, it's important to point out the Trump Foundation (laughs) had to be iced because of corruption, which no one even knows about and would be the biggest scandal ever to hit most presidencies. But in in this crazy administration, it's barely even mentioned, um, set off alerts in a computer system designed to detect illicit activity, according to five current and former bank employees. Compliance staff members who then reviewed the transactions prepared so-called suspicious activity reports that they believed should be sent to a unit of the Treasury Department that that uh, that polices financial crimes. According to the Times, higher-ups at the bank that was deeply in bed with the two, Trump and Kushner, to the tune of billions of dollars in loans, rejected their employees' advice, and the federal government was never alerted. By the way, some of the transactions with regard to Kushner were to Russian individuals. That's right, Russian individuals. I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. And I know that Trump will probably say that the New York Times has made this stuff up. And because it's sourcing and there's no, you know, hardcore proof of this, there's no interview with someone saying, hey, 
I flagged this as suspicious. I told my boss that we need to go to the federal government, and they rejected it, and I suspect it's because they were in bed with Donald Trump. That isn't apparently the case. And without that, to the cult, it's not going to matter, as unfortunate as that is. I love the poorly educated. But that's the reality. This is the kind of story, especially with e- without even the Mueller investigation. Take away the Mueller investigation for a moment. This is the kind of story that in a normal administration would be an earthquake. An earthquake because there's so many different layers to it. I mean, I mean not just the money laundering. Not just the Russian aspect, but when you take it in the full context of Deutsche Bank and the debt and the previous New York Times story about how much money Trump has lost over the years and the fact that Deutsche Bank is the only institution willing to loan to him and that they're blocking for him and this is all happening right in the middle of the 2016 campaign. My God. Wow. It's unbelievable. The whole thing is unbelievable. It's it's it's. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, come on, people. You cannot be serious. But this is where we are. This is where we are, folks. We're better than that. No, no, no. This is who we are. This is what we are. This is who our president is. And none of it matters. I mean, these things happen on a weekly basis. Sometimes more than that, we learn things that should fundamentally alter a perception of Donald Trump, our president, in a very negative way. And if anything, it works in the opposite direction. Similarly, I referenced during the interview with, uh, with David Frum, new news involving Michael Flynn, which I think is critical. If you connect the dots and you look at the whole picture, we learn, now we knew this partially already from the Mueller report, not that anyone bothered to read it, but we learned further that, that it was... Uh, members of the Trump team and members of Congress, or at least one member of Congress, presumably most people think it's Devin Nunez uh, from here in California, who's the, the super sycophant of Donald Trump, who pressured Mike Flynn to not cooperate with the Mueller investigation and that that pressure may have negatively impacted his cooperation with the Mueller investigation. Michael Flynn, of course, the former national security advisor, was there for like 15 minutes before being fired because he lied about his contacts with the Russian ambassador. And, and so and now we're going to learn all sorts of things about what really happened there. And, and now Trump bizarrely is trying to claim Michael Flynn, who I barely knew Michael Flynn. If, if someone had told me this, I would have fired him. That's bull crap. My, Donald Trump knew about Michael Flynn for at least two weeks before he fired him. He knew about the allegation with regard to the, to the lying, but he was told by Barack Obama to be wary of Michael Flynn and to not hire him. Michael Flynn was a huge part of Donald Trump's campaign. He spoke at the Republican convention. He was hired to be the national security advisor. And now Trump, like he always does when it's no longer suits his purposes or his self-interest, he tries to change history. Well, what's really happening is he's just... He's making it up as he goes and not. But no one cares because no one wants to put all the, 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 the dots together. And the dots here are important because, as I said in the David Frum interview, if you understand 
the effort to try to prevent Flynn from cooperating with Mueller in a way that in a rational world would be perceived as obstruction of justice, and apparently there's a, there's a voicemail message to this effect, if you understand that the Trump team was going to that level uh, to prevent Flynn's cooperation, then that puts what Flynn said to Comey in a completely different light which puts the Comey firing in a different light. The whole argument that the Comey firing, firing the FBI director was not obstruction as well. The president of the United States has the right to fire whoever he wants. He's the president. Yep, I get that. However, however, that firing, as I have said numerous times and I've written about this, that firing puts a different light on the statement that Trump made alone with James Comey to go easy on Michael Flynn. Well, now we now know that you cannot claim that that statement, which was contemporaneously uh, documented by, by then FBI Director James Comey, you cannot claim that that statement was just an idle statement. It was misinterpreted. Uh, he was just making an offhand comment. He didn't really understand because he's Donald Trump. He's new to the job. No, 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 no. That's not what happened here. This was part of an organized cover-up. Trump knew that Flynn made him vulnerable. That there was a vulnerability with regard to losing Michael Flynn. And that's why his team tried to make sure he did not cooperate with Mueller. The evidence of that now, even without all the details, is overwhelming. So you now must reevaluate the firing of James Comey. And the firing of James Comey now, based upon this new Flynn information, to me, is a deadlock cinch case for obstruction. Regardless of what Ken Starr tells the, the Trump cult on Fox News Channel or told me uh, when I confronted him about it at the Reagan Library late last year, you've got to connect all the dots. You have to see everything in context. And the context here is incredibly important. Now, I don't know whether it was the Flynn News or whether it was coincidence, but right after the Flynn News comes out, we have our first Republican congressman, Justin Amash, who came forward on Twitter, weird that he did it on Twitter, but it was a uh, very exceedingly popular, important uh, Twitter thread. Amash essentially said what I've been saying, that the Mueller report is devastating to Trump. It's far worse than Bill Barr indicated. Bill Barr deceived the American people on purpose in an effort to try to protect Donald Trump, and that the obstruction of justice allegations in the Mueller report are, in fact, impeachable. Congratulations, Justin Amash, for being the first Republican with at least one testicle. Now, he didn't have full testicles because he didn't come out and say, I will vote to impeach Donald Trump, and I urge my Democratic colleagues to bring this to the floor. He didn't do that. But, uh, you know, he came about as close as he could. So I'll give him credit. I mean, my, my standards are now very low when it comes to testicles. Uh, I'll give him credit for one full testicle. I will not give uh, Mitt Romney credit. Uh, credit for one full testicle because today Mitt Romney congratulated Amash on a courageous statement but then in this convoluted Romney-esque way claimed that somehow the the case against obstruction of justice was not proven which is consistent with what Romney said in his original statement about the Mueller report which I attacked at the time as not being accurate what's obvious is Romney is afraid 
that there will be impeachment and that if he makes a statement, because he actually still, you know, <laughs> believing somewhat in the truth, he has to stand by his statements, unlike Trump, who can say anything today and then contradict it tomorrow. But Romney clearly believes that if there's an impeachment, he doesn't want to be forced to vote guilty on obstruction, which is just cowardly and it's just pathetic. And, and given uh, Mitt Romney's position in the world, it's, it's just flat out ridiculous and sad. But that's where we are. But at least there's some semblance of progress with regard to uh, Justin Amash standing up for, for what is clearly the truth. It is obviously the truth. And Republicans would be saying this full-throatedly if it was about a Democrat. Because these are far more serious allegations than what got Bill Clinton impeached for obstruction of justice. Now, there are other things going on as well that get lost in this continued maelstrom. I am enraged, speaking of hypocrisy, by the latest pardon by Donald Trump. This is of Conrad Black, who's a billionaire, who just wrote a book praising Donald Trump. He just wrote a book sucking up to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump gives him a full pardon. A full pardon. Really. Seriously. You cannot be serious. Now, this makes eight out of ten pardons that Donald Trump has given so far that directly, directly dovetail with his self-interest or people who have been praising of him or supportive of him. There's some political element, clear political element to this. And all of them, I'm sure, in some way, shape, or form, fit his own personal self-interest whether it's Dinesh D'Souza or it's uh, Sheriff Arpaio in, in Arizona, now Conrad Black. And it's not just that he wrote a book Black did about Donald Trump. Being a billionaire, you know, Trump realizes there's a good chance he's going to be out of office pretty soon, whether it's in two years or, or almost six years. And, you know, doing favors for billionaires tends to work out well for you in the long run. So I'm sure that's also part of Donald Trump's thinking. But can you imagine, as bad as Donald Trump's pardons are now, when he's a year and a half away from running for re-election, a re-election he desperately wants to win, not just for his own ego, but potentially to keep him out of jail. Can you imagine if he gets re-elected how horrendous his pardons are going to be? I mean, they're, it's going to be, it's, in one way it will be comical, but in another way we will have completely and totally, if we haven't already, left the gravitational pull of the rational earth. And this is why the, the pardon power, you know, the, the founders never anticipated that we would have a Donald Trump in a first term. You know, it used to be like Bill Clinton and Mark Rich and Barack Obama did a few sketchy things as well. It used to be your last day in office. You would do some sketchy pardons on the way out the door. Donald Trump has the audacity to do them a year and a half before he's running for re-election. And the conservative media praises him. Laura Ingram actually went on Twitter and praised, practically praised the Conrad Black pardon. And if it had been reversed, she would be incensed. She would be calling for hearings, impeachment, all sorts of things. If it was Barack Obama who had done the same thing. But hypocrisy is dead, just like the truth is dead. It's, it's unbelievable. The whole thing is, is crazy. 
Speaking of pardons, there's another uh, pardon that's apparently coming. This uh, Eddie Gallagher guy who has been making news over the last 24 uh, hours or so. And uh, apparently over Memorial Day, Trump is going to pardon him for war crimes. Now, I'm always skeptical about, uh, you know, whether or not somebody is when the liberal media is telling me someone is clearly guilty. I'm like, okay, tell me what the facts are. But the facts against this guy appear to be exceedingly strong. His own servicemen, numerous servicemen, turned him in, uh, did, went to extraordinary measures to try to prevent what he was doing. He was harming and killing innocent people. And, he, and, and here's a guy who is the worst of the worst from everything that I have read so far, and Trump's going to pardon him on Memorial Day. I, I guess, as a, I don't know what, what does he think he's doing, that he, he's somehow promoting our troops. When, of course, in, in reality, he might be putting our troops in harm's way because this news is going to get back to the bad guys. And if we're absolving the people who have committed war crimes on our behalf, then what does that mean to them? That means they can do whatever the hell they want. That gives them the incentive and the motivation, the moral high ground to do horrible, horrendous things to our troops. Now, hopefully that never happens, but I don't get it. I mean, I, I, and I do know, once again, if the Barack Obama may, gave that kind of a pardon, there would be hell to pay. But it's the Trump cult. So we, gotta, we can't buck the cult. We must keep uh, making money. Uh, the click, service, click servatives, as I now refer to them uh, inartfully, they got to do what they got to do. Grifters got to grift. And that's what's going to keep happening here because you can't tell the truth about Donald Trump from a conservative perspective because you'll lose most of your audience because it's now a cult. Uh, I mentioned in episode number 30 uh, the, of the Individual One podcast, there were a couple stories involving uh, Trump's golf game that I found to be important. And we mentioned golf during the David Frum interview. Uh, my spidey senses in episode number 30 were dead on. I told you that the story that from the golf writer, author, Rick Riley, that has been getting a lot of play involving uh, Trump coercing this club champion in one of his clubs in Florida into playing a very, very abbreviated match uh, to play for a pseudo club championship because he had missed the club championship because he's president and that it involved one of his young kids. Uh, and that uh, Trump cheated and basically took the kid's ball that was on the green and forced the kid uh, to play the ball that Trump hit in the water. That sounded horrendous. I also said it didn't sound true, mostly because I don't believe Rick Riley. I don't think he's a trustworthy person. I don't think he's credible. His sourcing wasn't that great. Well, literally right after episode number 30 of the Individual One podcast, we learned uh, someone tweeted this to me, which I did not know at the time, but I think it happened basically that day was that, yeah, uh, sure enough, some of the details in the story have been proven to be not true, specifically the age of the kid. There is no young kid of this guy who Trump uh, challenged to be the club champion. And right there, once you get that kind of a detail wrong, I'm now suspicious of the whole story, especially, again, given that I don't trust Rick Riley. So that story, uh, to me, um, there's probably some truth to it. I'm sure it was inappropriate, but I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it was nearly as bad as what is now being portrayed. One other story involving golf that does make somebody look bad, but it's not Donald Trump. It's the news media and involves Donald Trump's golf scores and his handicap. 
Now you're going to think, what difference does this make, Zig? It makes it makes some difference about how what complete and total idiots, imbeciles, the news media uh, is. And here's the story. So it was a fairly major story at some point this week that Donald Trump, according to his golf scores that he's posted on his handicap with the United States Golf Association, had recently shot a 68 which is a very good score, on a very tough golf course. The course rating uh, for that particular day, I think, was 75 point something, which is very difficult. I mean, almost as difficult as the golf course they're playing for the PGA Championship today, which looks like it's going to be won by Brooks Kepka. And uh, so a 68 by an old guy on a very tough golf course is not likely. I mean, that sounds like a... And so the media immediately, including uh, some pretty prominent people, uh, Chris uh, Cezilla on uh, CNN got pilloried on, on Twitter for writing a whole article about, did Trump really shoot a 68? And he goes into, you know, this would be the best round he's ever sh- uh, shot, and but he has this history of cheating. And the whole narrative is that this was real, that, oh, my gosh, Trump has posted a 68. And is he really lying about it, or did he somehow play the greatest round of his life? And I keep thinking, you morons, you idiots, imbeciles. There's no indication that that 68 was posted by Donald Trump. If you look at his posting, he almost never posts a score, especially while he's president, probably because he doesn't really keep a legitimate score or maybe he doesn't even play all 18 holes or he doesn't want his he doesn't want the public to know what he shot or he doesn't want to impact his handicap. He likes having his handicap be like two or three, which is probably way lower than what it really ought to be because I doubt he's a legitimate two or three handicap. But the, here's the reality. The alternative scenario here is far more sensical. Someone hacked his handicap and played a practical joke on him. That was obvious. And it's not that difficult to do. All you need to do is be at, have his, his, his identification number and have a little bit of knowledge of how this works. And it's very easily done. People have done this before. Sometimes people do it as a joke. And it, what, to me, made it clearly a prank was that 68... For a two or three handicapper, that was posted by someone who knows what they're doing because that's probably the lowest number that the computer would have accepted for a two or three handicap because the computer will automatically reject a score that's way too low for a particular handicap. So when I saw a 68 and this was the only score he had posted in a long time and it would have dropped his handicap, he has no incentive to do this, Trump, because his handicap would have been shot to hell. He'd be down to like a one handicap instantaneously, if not lower than that, and now he can't win any match that he plays against anybody based upon his handicap. So that doesn't make any sense. And then the next day after... Uh, I tweeted that this is obviously a hoax or a prank. It turns out that the USGA said, yep, somebody has been posting false scores on Donald Trump's handicap. So the important point of this is has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has to do with what morons the news media is and how it is that uh, Donald Trump is continually able to manipulate the morons of the news media because they just accept everything at face value. They never use their brains if they have any, and they never ask anybody who actually knows what they're doing. Any serious golfer would have told you that doesn't make any sense. Let me tell you what does make sense. Somebody has 
hacked or pranked uh, his handicap system, and it turns out that's exactly uh, what occurred. Uh, Joe Biden, who I've said, and David Frum seems to agree with me, is by far the, the person who is most likely to beat Donald Trump, officially kicked off his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, just near where I grew up, and I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, in a way that I thought was exceedingly well done. Now, I'm never been a fan of Joe Biden, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And so I have been somewhat promoting his candidacy basically as, hey, look, if you want to make sure that there's not a second term for Donald Trump, Joe Biden's the guy. And the numbers make it obvious. The the logic makes it obvious. And part of that logic is based in the state of Pennsylvania. So I, I thought that they did a very good job doing this in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, wrapping yourself around the origins of our democracy, using the words of the founding fathers, using language of unity, trying to tell people who are in the middle of the road, look, I'm not scary. I'm not out for revenge. We're not going to become socialists necessarily. You know, this, we're not going to fundamentally alter what we have been or what we are uh, in, in some sort of overreaction to Donald Trump. And I'm going to focus right here on Pennsylvania where I was born in Scranton. And this is the state that is going to determine who wins the 2020 election. That's very smart politically, very smart politically, because if in fact, and a most recent poll by Quinnipiac shows that Joe Biden is crushing Donald Trump in Pennsylvania, not only crushes him nationally, but in Pennsylvania, if that holds, then all Biden would have to do to beat Trump, assuming he was the nominee, is win Wisconsin and win Michigan. And then it's ball game. Then it's all over. There's nothing Trump can do. That's it. Period. And winning Wisconsin and Michigan should be pretty darn easy. Uh, you know, because they were complete flukes in 2016. And who knows how much the Russians may have helped in both of those states, as David and I were talking about during our interview. So the, the reality is this is smart politically. So if, in fact, Joe Biden is the nominee and he gets through largely unscathed and he doesn't pick a complete nut job for his vice presidential nominee, all those are significant ifs, then I think it's pretty much over for Trump. I'm not convinced all that's going to happen. But I do think the chances of that have increased, uh, partially because of polling data. The polling data is weird. Trump's approval ratings are increasing, but he seems to be doing worse against Biden in particular and some other Democratic candidates head-to-head. That seems to be contradictory, and I haven't exactly figured out what's going on there. But based upon the fact that the Biden people seem to understand what the right strategy is here, and the fact that Biden currently is dominating the Democratic field, I'm going to reduce the chances of Trump winning a second term to, let's call it 45% now. It might even be lower than that, but I'm a pessimist by, by nature. But I'm going to put it officially at 45%. Remember, please, no, no wagering. Uh, and that, of course, will go way down if, in fact, Joe Biden is the nominee and gets through unscathed. I am still convinced, as I mentioned to David, that there are people who are going to go after Joe Biden because this does not help them at all for Joe Biden to to run away with the Democratic nomination. They're going to go after him. There's going to be lots of powerful people on the left who will want to go after him. And of course, the Trump people are going to help because they know Joe Biden is death to them. Uh, more so than any other Democratic candidate. So 45% for Trump's reelection, 
with Justin Amash's statement, I'm going to tick up the chances that Donald Trump does not finish his first term all the way to, let's call it 8%. And that's probably being overly optimistic. But that'll do it for this edition of the uh, Individual One Podcast, episode number 31. Episode number uh, 32 uh, will be coming up, as usual, on Wednesday, early afternoon, Wednesday, Los Angeles time is when we will release that. Until then... Uh, Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Share this episode via social media. Follow us on Twitter at the individual one, number one pod handle. That's individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, you're listening to the Global Story Network.